Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. Good afternoon, Russ. How are you? Fine. It's been 24 hours. 24 long hours 24 since we talked. Long hours since we talked. <laughs> An entire spin of that globe behind you. Yep. That's that's an important thing to know. And Yvonne is back with us because hey, it's, hey, it's, hey. it's round, round, round table day. Yes. And it is a Friday <laughs> when we're recording, and all I can say is TGIF. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> yeah, what? me too, actually. <laughs> what a week this has been. Oh my goodness, trying to get lab work done. I don't know, maybe I'm getting too old to lab. Is that a thing? No, <laughs> never too old to lab. If your fingers are broken and you can't type on a keyboard, okay, then maybe you can't lab. But but that's not necessarily a function of age. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a thing. Um and then I don't know the CCSD stuff. I'm trying to finish all that up. And I've got, I, I just have a lot of odds and ends to get done. And it's just been a crazy week. And it's just been crazy trying to get it all done. Um, So I guess today, roundtable. So let's talk, begin with this article about business logic vulnerabilities, which I think is interesting. So there was a report that I saw. Let me see if I can find it real fast. Talking about... Um, the cost of cybercrime in the U.S. And I think they said last year it was $10.3 billion. And, you know, sometimes I feel like we're doing something wrong. But. Well, really, we're doing a lot of things wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for your vote of confidence there. (laughs) I told you, it's been a week of Mondays. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. It's like that old saw about having 20 years experience is not the same thing as having one year of experience 20 times. Yeah. Well, having a week. That's also true. Yeah. (laughs) Having a week is not the same as having a week of Mondays. That's right. They're they're different things. So let's talk about this. I mean, what is like a business logic vulnerability? Um, I'm trying to read this and see what it says about it. Like, Yeah, I I think the point that he's making here is that oftentimes, especially as technologists, we we look at we look at everything through a purely technical lens. And and so it's it's entirely possible for a system to be broken at a systems implementation level and not necessarily have the technology malfunction. Right. So let's, you know, we, we talk a lot in my world about user personas and user journeys and user stories. But, but there are ways you can compromise a system, not because um, somebody leaked a key or because somebody even social engineered and got somebody's password, but a system can be compromised because the logic flow through which you send a user is broken. You, you, you take somebody to a place either where they're not authorized to be or that, that they didn't want to be that is a failure of the business logic, not so much a technology failure. Um, and I, I think it's a, an interesting point, um, and it points out a whole new area of challenge, both just from functionality and customer 
experience, but also uh, a security standpoint, giving people access to stuff that either they shouldn't have or that causes some sort of a system failure. It's an interesting topic. Yeah, so I, I feel like this is between social engineering and actual failure on the technical side, right? Like, this is not necessarily social engineering, but it's kind of like social engineering for a website. It's like, okay, I found this thing where if I go in and I hit order on two different, if I hit put placing cart in two different places at the same time, it messes up the system and it, it opens up a door for me to go do this. It's like jailbreaks in chat GPT and other large language models. Like you're not interfacing with a, with a, you're not interfacing with a person. So you're not socially engineering them, but you're also not interfacing with necessarily a failure in the actual code per se. It's not a defect that can be fixed. It's actually just the way the processors are put together. Yeah. And, and in this article, he lists a few different potential consequences. He mentions price manipulation in e-commerce sites, uh, reservation system manipulation or data leaks, for example, in healthcare or stolen credentials in retail businesses. And some of those sound more like general technology failures, but at the same time, um, he, he, he outlines how, um, sometimes it's a business logic failure. And I think, you know, I, I feel like the industry went through a period of time where we're talking about, we talk a lot about breaking down silos, like silos shouldn't exist. They're bad. But that's, that's really a, uh, an optimistic view because people need to be organized in small groups, relatively small groups. We know that, that teams don't function if they get bigger than, than 10 or 15, that each of those teams needs a manager and those managers have spans of control. And I mean, so you're always going to have silos in an organization, but I think the way that, that you avoid these kinds of things is forcing in some way it and, and, and it doesn't have to be, um, brutal the word force is a little strong but 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 encouraging or building structures in which those silos work together you know so yeah they are independent but at the same time like we get together and we say okay what's this flow look like and why and we talk about interaction surfaces and technology all the time but even in our business processes what are the interaction surfaces between those business processes and how do we make sure that not only is the user having a good experience but we're not creating a weird uh logic gap that enables something that we didn't mean to um just because of how we put the pieces together yeah I think that's all absolutely true. And I think that part of it too is, is when we, when we do silo, which is, as you said, sometimes necessary, not necessarily to silo per se, but to have different teams, we don't have clear cut ground rules. And sometimes it's not easy to make clear. I mean, look at sports, right? Football still has referees and they still make calls and people still don't agree with them. Soccer, I mean, I'm in the U.S., so I'm sorry for all you European people. I just called football, football, and soccer. So anyway, whatever. It's the same thing, right? Um, you still have referees who still make calls, and, and sometimes nobody agrees with them. And tennis is the same way. Is it in or is it out? And the, there's a line judge that has to stand there and watch and say, this is in, this is out. And so the rules are 
ambiguous, not ambiguous, but can be interpreted differently. And I think this is where a lot of these failures come in is that the person driving the front end of the website set or building the front end of the website says, now, Mr. Backend Developer, I'm going to send you X and you're going to do Y with it. But then Y is not necessarily as clear cut as the person saying that thinks. And you end up with this gap in the business logic that can be exploited if you know how to find it. And these aren't easy to find. Now, I mean, from a network engineer's perspective, what do you do? I mean, my answer is we've got to climb the stack sometimes. We can't just put in stateful filters. Sometimes we need to put in contextual filters, application firewalls. And we need to think about things beyond the correctness of the HTML and start, I mean, there's deeper stuff that's going on here. I, I think that that complex systems, systems will only get more complex as time goes on. Um, I don't think we're ever going to go backwards on complexity. I think that it'll just keep climbing. And I think that complex systems, you know, they're, they're always in a state of failure. This is one of the, uh, you know, complexity theory. This is one of the, one of the things, yep. uh, large complex systems are always in some form of failure. And I, 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 my read of this is that this is one of the ways in which we can detect failure is this business logic, business logic failure. And mm. I, I, under his, under the, the mitigating vulnerabilities, I, of course, just love that the very first one is uh, comprehensive and continuous testing. I think as as systems get more complex, we will be forced to actually do real testing, which nobody can nobody can afford to do it now. We, we don't have time. We don't have money to test it. Um, and it's not like it fixes everything, but I think um, I like that that was his first bullet point. I think that's a, that's a good point. When we talk a lot about error ha handling in, in software development, right? If you're writing code, how are you going to handle errors? Um, and we talk about, when we talk about firewalling, we talk about fail open and fail closed. You also need to look at your business processes that way. Like if something happens in this business process that's unexpected, what do we do? Does it fail open or does it fail closed? If it fails open, then that, that system or process should require considerable more scrutiny because if it fails and then it's open, okay, so what weird things could happen? Right. And I think sometimes like defining those boundaries can be really helpful. Um, and, and then, uh, yeah, he also mentions access controls, uh, input validation, which to me sounds just like this is a response. I don't even know that I would put that in a logic category. This is like just a responsible thing to do, but also lo logging and monitoring. How do we, how do we detect when the weird thing happens and what was the context around that weird thing happening? Because sometimes, on these really strange boundary cases, um, all you know is something weird happened, but you don't know what caused it to happen. And so even recreating the problem can become a challenge. Yeah. So I, when I read, when I read, um, it, when I hear testing, Tom, and when I, when I hear uh, boundary testing and stuff like boundary, understanding boundaries and stuff like that um, and logic, I'm thinking more along the lines of SQL injection attacks, things of that nature, where you know what the bound of things should be, right? A customer should only be able to put one thing in a cart type of thing, very simple things. And I, I also think that, that this brings up a couple of types of testing we don't often do, because when you get to system testing, the problem is it's an NP-hard problem. Like you can't test every possible combination. And so what do you do? You fuzz, 
and you chaos engineer. And we don't do any of that today. Uh, you know, we were just recording we were just recording another podcast where somebody said, well, you know, in banks, they do banks and healthcare. They tend to run further behind on software and they're safer. And I keep thinking to myself, if I could find a hospital system that does chaos testing in their network, that's probably the hospital I'm going to. <laughs> well, I mean, but that goes back to the whole like accelerate paper and what N- Nicole Forsgren's re- research, right? Where, where basically she proved that the more reliable systems, those those developers release more frequently, not less frequently, right? So uh, there's a whole uh, misnomer there that uh, if you go slow, that you have more quality. That is not necessarily true in software development um, because the systems that enable you to go fast are also the systems that support consistency, reliability, unit testing, all the things that we know that are so important. So um, I, I, I'm a big believer. I also, like one of the quotes I carry around with me all the time is that hurry and impatience are sure marks of an amateur. I think that is true. But at the same time, uh, slower does not necessarily mean better. Yeah. That was a lot. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's no, it's all good. Though. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I would, I don't know. I would state it even maybe a little strong, a little stronger than that. It's, I, I think, continuously releasing and 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 doing the things you need to do to release often. It almost universally. I, I don't know. Maybe it universally makes it better. Uh, I think, I, I think the slowing down is really just to appease the risk averseness inside of each of us. Um, it makes us feel better, but it does not make the system better. Uh, but if we feel better, I guess that's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, there is, again, this goes back to the human element, right? That we we feel better, and that is absolutely what it is, when we have to look at a thing and approve it and click the button that says it's good, even though, like, we are not cognitively able to understand all that we are looking at. You know what I'm saying? Like, you might catch some glaring things, but at the same time, having some sort of built-in test is way better than than having a yeah. human put put eyes on it but that's a uh, that's a very humbling and hard thing to come to terms with sometimes definitely true <laughs> with code reviews it's definitely true with editing books the number of times when i'm writing something and somebody will send it back to me as a pdf and say read this and make sure it's correct and i'm like no <laughs> <laughs> Because you're saying because they made it too hard on you? The, but, is no, that the PDF because, comment? Or? Because I can't, I can't use any automated tools once you put it in fixed format. And my me reading my own text, I'm not going to find anything wrong with it ever. That's right. Yeah. That's just the way it works. I'm sorry. You know. It's well, because a, cognitively you know what it should say. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, you're just going to gloss right over all those errors because your yeah. your brain is trying to help you out there by making it easier, right? Yeah. It's the same thing with code reviews, right? I mean, automated testing means so much more when you're looking at code than me sitting there and looking at it and saying, yeah, it all looks structured right to me. I mean, I'll catch stuff. Everybody catches stuff. But then you commit it and you break the build and everybody's like, how'd the build get broken? Well, I don't know. Well, one of the things um, <laughs> one of the things I say often anymore is that words are hard. And when I say words are hard, what I mean is it's very difficult to express everything you need to express about a thing 
to another person in a way that they understand it and then can go and take action on that that aligns with your intent right it's really that's really hard to do and the, and and that's same thing happens when we're trying to talk about business processes and systems like one person documents a thing and they think it's very absolutely clear what they want and then somebody goes off and implements it and it's like yeah this is not what we were talking about and then you get ghosts in the machine because of you know both parties very well meaning but just misunderstanding one another um and they can it, yeah it, it it happens so often one one other just funny thing I saw the other day. It was a survey where they were asking like, what, what's the easiest degree program to go through in college? And they were like communications. And I'm like, people don't understand how hard it is to actually communicate and communicate well. It's a very difficult thing to do. Um, but they think because we all talk, communication is easy. Um, yeah, not so much. <laughs> you know, that made me, that made me think Yvonne, I've, I've had this experience a bunch in the last couple of years. Um, so I do, I do a ton of uh, system behavioral testing, like system level integration testing. And um, I or someone else will write a test and then something will fail. And then the failure happens and you start talking amongst the, the people who test and the people who develop. And you're, they're like, well, why did that fail? That's how it should be working. And then at some point you look at the facts of what happened when you pointed a machine at another machine. And then almost every time someone is like, oh, I didn't know that it was supposed to work like that. Or what are what I no one told me this was the use case, but that that stuff would have gone straight into production without that. And it's just really interesting. Like we, I think failure is a great place to um, kind of force the communication. Uh, doing trying to do it, you know, and I think this is some of the theory behind chaos engineering. But trying to figure everything out academically in your head before it hits the ground, you just are. It's just too hard, mm -hmm. like you said. But once you once you have something like once you have a broken thing on the ground, it's I think it's a lot easier to reason together about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, is trying to figure it all out in your head before you start implementing. Like you yeah. got to You got to have some basic structure. So I'm not saying don't 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 have a plan, but it's actually it's psychologically demotivating as well. Right. Like you're the, the longer you ruminate over it, the longer it takes you to start. And it's actually the starting that makes progress. And so I think um, that's something I've been trying to work on a lot in myself personally lately is like, what's the minimum I need to do to just start as opposed to let's try and figure out everything um, in yes. advance. Yeah. And that, that, by the way, runs across life. That is not a technology yep. thing. That is yeah. a that's life right. thing. Yeah. Um, that's how people are. Well, how do you write a whole book? I don't know. Start on page one. I was I was I was listening to somebody the other day. I know this is not exactly on topic, but you know it's a roundtable. Um, we they were they were talking about a very busy person who was writing books. Um, and it, and and this person was writing a novel, which is completely not in their realm of expertise. And they were asked the question, well, "How did you write a novel?" He's like, "I made sure that once I got my outline done, every day I wrote for at least fifteen minutes because." You can do anything for 50, you know, anybody, everybody has 15 minutes. Mm. And I thought, wow, what a perspective that I just spent it just, just 15 minutes every day. I gave it 15 minutes. And I think that's, um, yeah, I don't know. I learned a lot from that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a bonus for today. Yeah, no, it is. Well, and, and honestly, when, when it, I mean, you know, now that you break open the whole topic of time management, it really comes down to a lot of times the difference between microtasking and macrotasking, right? And there are some things that I can be successful at doing 15 minutes a day. And there are some things that I can't. Yeah. Because, you, yeah. 
I, I need to sit and focus for four hours, unfortunately, to get it done or wherever. I don't get four hours. hours to sit and never focus on anything. So maybe that's <laughs> why I'm less productive than you, Russ. I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, that's always my, I try to do that in the morning, but, you know, a lot of times I come downstairs and I look at, into my little basement office and I look around and I'm like, I'm going to check my email. Oh, no. No, worst don't do that. <laughs> the worst thing in the world. <laughs> the whole day. I really blown. value my sleep, Russ. <laughs> <laughs> the whole day is blown if I start with email. So the other thing we could talk about today, which is interesting, is um, Wi-Fi upgrades and 800 gig upgrades. And I'm beginning to feel like we are on a hype cycle. And I'm not entirely certain where this hype cycle ends. Or what we're I want to get off. I want to get off. <laughs> Is this really being useful? I mean, there's always these up and to the right charts. Oh, we need so much more bandwidth. Oh, we need so much. And like the register had this article about Wi-Fi 6 and how they're push, they're starting to push Wi-Fi 6 and saying, well, I mean, you can stream movies with Wi-Fi 5 on multiple devices. At what point are we actually solving things? And the other thing that they point out is, you know, this is often a thing we don't think about. Wi-Fi 6 is using higher frequency signals to modulate onto. And if you know much about radio engineering, the first thing you're going to think when you think higher frequency is, number one, it doesn't go through physical objects as well as lower frequencies do. I mean, submarines use... Submarines use 10 meter and 20 and, uh, and 5 meter and, and 4 meter communications because it goes through the ocean, right? And when you get, I mean, there's a point where you're talking, I just can't get signal to travel. Rule of thumb for anybody who doesn't know this, a electron, a, an electromagnetic signal loses 50% or one, um, 1 dB of signal, 50% of its signal basically every wavelength. That's effectively, that's what in traveling through air or a vacuum. Well, not a vacuum, but through air. That's just the resistance of the air. And so, you know, I used to work on radar systems. We sent a 250,000 watt signal and we would get back after a 250 mile round trip, we would get back a signal that was in the milliwatts. And so, I mean, you just realize these high frequency things they're doing to get Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi 7, I'm sorry, they're actually talking about Wi-Fi 7 in the article, is like, wow, we're at high frequency. It's not going through a wall. Like at some point, what are we doing to ourselves? Are we actually solving any problems? And I just wonder if it's hype cycle or if we're actually solving something. Maybe you two have better insight into my predicament. So the the subtitle of, of this uh, article, and it is the register, so they've always got a, a fun yeah, tone, a little bit snarky, but uh, it says 46 gigabit per second to our sofa. At last, freedom from the nightmare of a mere 9.6, right? And I think he's making, he's, the, the, and that's the point Russ is making, like how much bandwidth do we really need? But what this really makes me think of, um, it, the, there's a book called The Goal, um, by Goldrat, and, and this whole book is about the Toyota Way and the um, implementation of um, that of of the system to improve constraints in manufacturing. And actually, another little history lesson: if you didn't know, that system became the foundational building blocks of agile development, 
um, and a lot of what happens in, in DevOps and software development today. But part of what he talks about in that book is that if you want to create the overall efficiency of a, something like a manufacturing system, then you have to address constraints. Um, you have to address problems at the point of the constraint and you have to eliminate work in progress. So, and he makes the point in that book that actually if you increase the efficiency of a system at a place where there is not a constraint, you slow the entire system down because you're creating a backlog, yep. right? So if if we've got all this bandwidth at our homes and we're trying to, to do way more things than the upstream network is capable of, then ultimately we're going to have a worse experience because we don't have that same amount of capability upstream. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it is, it is the same problem like that, that we've been like th this manufacturing problem has been happening since we had assembly lines, you know, and, and certainly was a problem with quality in the fifties and sixties. And so it's just the same problem in a new iteration. Yeah. Anyway. Those are this my, is, this, my thoughts no, that, on this that's, one. That's good. I mean, this is buffer. This is this is higher instances of buffer bloat. It's exactly what it is. And 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 more TCP slow slow starts. That's what yep. this is coming down to. And I'm not sure that it's very. But overall, I mean, this just indicates to me like the industry, the networking industry, is really on and up and to the right, and has been for a long time. And I just wonder at some point, are we going to step step back and say, okay, we really have enough bandwidth. We really, we really just need to figure out how to deploy it better. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, will we always have a have enough bandwidth? You know, there's that whole six. Who, who needs more than what was it? Was it 64k or 640k? Yeah. The the Bill Gates quote, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I you know, but I I think like we we're just not solving the problem at the place of the constraint right now. Um, and and that's that to me is is the the biggest challenge. Um. You know, um, constraints are moving back toward processing, especially yes. when you talk about GPUs and all the new capabilities that we have that require GPUs, like right now, like we're all sitting around waiting on NVIDIA um, and and not so much our home Wi-Fi. Yeah. Um, that may change at some point. I mean, maybe we put this technology in our pocket, but I think... Right now, deploying 46 gig to your couch um, is not going to provide any kind of measurable improvement in your experience. In fact, and it may gonna, actually make it worse. Yeah, I was going to say it yeah. is going to make it worse, not just from buffer bloat. Even if it works, even if I could get 46 gig to my couch over Wi-Fi. Now, first of all, I'll just say, you know, I have wires in my house. I am perfectly capable of wiring my television if it needs more than nine gig or whatever it is on Wi-Fi. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, there there are alternate solutions that might be that might be better for this particular problem, but beyond all that, running it wireless, I mean, all you're going to have is more dead spots. All you're going to have is, you know, you're going to be building a lot more complexity. You're going to need mesh systems that have a lot closer connectivity and have to be positioned precisely. Home users aren't going to do all that stuff, and you're just going to end up with with thousands of failed systems and bad reviews on your favorite shopping site and everybody mad. I don't know that it solves anything. <laughs> that's, that's I don't know, weird. Russ, maybe, maybe someday we'll all have a holodeck at home. You know, <laughs> the, 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 the Star Trek holodeck. I mean, how much bandwidth must it take 
to yeah, deliver but, an entire holodeck from your house to my house, right? Yes, but, I mean, you but never it could know. Be wired. <laughs> <laughs> but then we're then we're disenfranchising all the 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 poor folks in rural areas that that. And I mean, unfortunate folks in rural areas who don't have access to 46 gig to their sofa. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) I can argue both sides. Tom, we might let you talk at all. It's okay. I I think what is being pointed out here is the um, sort of the consequences of solving problems that aren't problems. Um, You know, the engineering... I'm sure that making these faster systems required, you know, a lot of uh, intellectual horsepower. Um, it's just too bad that it couldn't be applied to places where we actually have problems. But you know, maybe we'll maybe we'll learn. Maybe we'll yeah. maybe we'll find something here. I'm, you know, the principles can always be. Um, I really liked what you said about um, about Toyota and about you know that translates. As, as I didn't. You know, Russ beat me to it, but like, yes, T- TCP congestion control is the 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 physical protocol manifestation of, uh, you know, efficiency in the wrong places in a system. I thought that yeah. was brilliant. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. I mean, and then the other articles from in the same area is 800 gig ethernet, which i actually might make sense given that we are struggling right now to get, um, because of, um, you know, the, the processing issues that we're doing and issues around processing. So maybe 800 gig ethernet makes more sense. Yeah, in the backbone. In the backbone, I think it it makes sense to keep increasing bandwidth for sure. Yeah, or data center fabric. I mean, at some point, you know, because a lot of times when you take a data center fabric, you take take 800 gig and it sounds like a lot. But in reality, a lot of times you're using octopus cables and breaking that out. So it's not actually higher bandwidth. It's more processors that I can hang off the end of a top of rack, which increases density, which helps me from a power and energy perspective and all that other stuff. But, well, and yeah. as somebody who used to take phone support calls back in the dial-up days, right, um, where there were, you know, people would go buy a faster modem. You know, they would go and get so the Yvonne, new. And when she read the 9.6 in that article, had subhead, yeah, she yeah, wasn't yeah. thinking 9.6 gig. No, no. <laughs> um, BPS, baby. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, but but folks would go out and they would buy the new like 56K US Robotics Sportster modem, right? And then they would plug it up and they would have quality issues on their phone line and they would still get like the 24K connection. And then they would call their ISP, who was me, and say, hey, I just bought this big expensive modem. Why isn't it working better? Um, that's what I think of when I think about these like home wireless solutions that are faster, like the user's going to go out to their local big box store or Amazon or, you know, click the link in their email like, yeah, I want that because things have been a little slow lately. And they're not going to experience any positive, um, you know, gain from that investment. And, you know, they would have wasted cash and bought gear that was not necessary and mm. all those fun things like and now it's, they're just mad and they and, go on the yeah and they go write a negative review on it and everybody gets mad and, and history like, yeah, repeats well, itself yet again that's right it's really not very useful but yeah but yeah i mean i i, I do think that I, it just was a larger thing to me about like the hype in our industry i'm like what are we doing are we really are we really solving problems that need to be solved or have we gotten to the point where we just want the hype cycle for the hype cycle and i know we've been there for a long time but this was just another indication of that to me. 
I know we like to complain about Gardner because it's so they're they're pretty easy to to take a, a oh pot shot at. Oh my goodness! But <laughs> but truer thing, a, a, a truer model has never been created than their hype cycle. Like the the yeah. the, the Gartner hype cycle is a thing. If you've not seen it, Google it. There are plenty of charts. Um, it, it may not be exactly precise, but but any any new technology is going to follow that curve, and so it's it's a it's an important thing to be yeah. be familiar with. It is, but not every but any new technology that succeeds, not every technology is going to succeed. I mean, I, I well remember the Gartner charts that said up and to the right for ATM to the desktop, and everybody's going to have twenty five gig ATM to their desktop, and a lot of networking vendors went out and built and bought ATM gear and ATM expertise to make that happen. And then it never happened. And it was like, yeah, not so much up and to the right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good point because there are, um, yeah, I mean, technologies that fail either, either never, never make it into the hype cycle or yeah. they, there's a bunch of hype. And then they fizzle. Um, then they fizzle dare I say that we're seeing that play out a bit with like crypto and blockchain right now. I, I don't know that those are going to come back or they may, but I, I think that that's a technology that was significantly hyped. That's like now like dead. You just don't hear a lot about it. So quantum, um, quantum sometimes I feel like is going back a little bit quantum networking, though I still see it from time to time. Yeah. Although I saw an application for blockchain the other day I thought was interesting, which was sharing a view of um, service availability or service reliability or something like this between a customer and a provider so that both can place their things on a single blockchain and share them in a, in a way that can be private between them, but at the same time is irrevocable, um, which I thought was a fairly interesting concept. I don't know where it would go anywhere, but it was just an interesting idea. I think there are very interesting use cases, uh, but I think it, it, it was the it was the panacea, um, yeah. which which no technology is even even yeah. even the truly revolutionary ones. AI, large language model, and all the all the chat bots and everything else, and now it's in every operating system and on every website. And on every vendor everywhere, everything is this, this, this stuff. And I mean, it's useful in some ways, but like, hmm, maybe we're just hyping too much. I think, it, uh, so my personal opinion on that one is I really do think it will change the way we work. I do think it's going to change a lot of what knowledge work is and how it plays out. But I think there's a, it'll be 10 years before we have any idea what that's really going to look like. And I think right now it's also new and it's changing so fast that, Folks are just trying to get their arms around what it even means and what it is and where it makes sense and where it doesn't. Because if if you don't want to actually create something um, and have some room for variation, a large language model might not be your best approach because it is generative. It's going to go create stuff and it's going to hallucinate. It's, it's how the models work. Now, in six months or a year, that that may differ may be different and that statement may no longer be valid but it's the case today yeah we'll also have to see how the lawsuits settle out over it because there's a lot of there's a lot of lawsuits right now from authors who are saying 
you consume my text and you spit it back out as something creative to somebody else. Yeah. What's and what's I'm the not, corpus of data that's inbounds and, yeah, and what data exactly. are we able to tra- train on yeah. and what um, is yeah. is out of bounds and yeah. yeah. And we just exactly. don't have the legal structures right now to yeah. uh, answer those questions. And, you know, Adobe is the one company that's kind of attacked this in an interesting way where they have a generative AI, but it only works on their licensed um, set of images so that if you get it from Adobe, you know that it's based on their clip art and their Adobe stock photo sets. It's not based on generic Internet, stole it from somebody who did this, that or the other. And that may be that may be the way that we have to go with with generative AI because, I mean, taking the works of Shakespeare to teach you how to write is one thing. Taking the works of Tom Clancy while he's still alive, or his, you know, right. that's that's a different entire. Well, yeah, anything that's not public domain, right? Um, I mean, yeah, we do have exactly. some some laws that help dictate that. Um, I think the the more interesting questions, and we're getting off topic again, are what do, what do you do about? There is like, no topic. It's a roundtable. Awesome. What do you do about creating <laughs> an image in somebody's likeness? I mean, do we each own our own likeness? And, you know, this and this is, you know, we're seeing a lot with the with the strike that's going on now um, in Hollywood and those kinds of things. But I mean, the, you know, for an actor, a big part of their um, earning potential once they've established themselves is their actual physical likeness. And so, um it's it's going to be fun times. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be very difficult. So anyway, well, I have no more topics. Do you have any more off topics for us? I mean, I could come up with something, but you probably don't want me to after the week <laughs> I've had. <laughs> and what about you, Tom? Anything else? No, I know. I don't. I think this is great. Yep. Okay. Nothing else. Nothing That's else. Fun. We've just run out. It's Friday afternoon and we've just run out. That's right. Okay. That's cool. All right. Well, Tom, where can people get in touch with you if they want to? I am on LinkedIn. You can search for Tom Ammon. You'll probably find me. And Yvonne? Yeah. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn at Yvonne Sharp. I can't even say my own name. Uh, Search for Yvonne Sharp. And then also on the platform formerly known as Twitter as Sharp Network. Okay. It's getting better. It's Friday afternoon, Yvonne. Don't worry. I'll get there. I'll get just a few more hours. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. And I'm Russ White. You can always find me here at rule11.tech on the hedge. I don't know. LinkedIn, blah, blah, blah. You can find me if you look for me. Trust me. It's not that hard. Uh, Thanks for spending your time with us. And we hope you have a great weekend. If you're listening to this on a Friday, if you're not, we hope you have a great rest of your week. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Hedge, and we'll catch you next time.